Mark, what's up, man? Welcome to the Warrior Soul Podcast. What's going on, Chris? How are you? Good, man. Good to see you again. Uh, we met back, well, I think it was before the holidays. I think it was like closer to October. You were at uh, yeah. an open mat at Alliance South Florida, my uh, my jiu-jitsu academy that I train at, and kind of kind of hit it off. We rolled a little bit, um, talked a little bit about your background, found out you're in the Marine Corps. But uh, for the audience, can you talk, tell, tell everybody a little bit about who you are, where you're coming from, what you're doing? Sure. Yeah. Uh, first of all, it feels like it was like two days ago that I, I know, I, right? And because so much has happened since then. But uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm an active duty Marine right now. I'm a chief one officer down at uh, Paris Island, back where we make Marines. Uh, no disrespect to the West Coast guys, but uh, I'm the uh, director for the Marine Band down there. So I, I essentially lead everybody in the musical group. Um, we do colors and graduation ceremonies and all sorts of performances up and down uh, the Eastern recruiting region. So uh, professionally, that's that's what I do. And uh, yeah, obviously we met um, down at Alliance. Man, what a cool group of people too. Um, I used to train out in San Diego at Alliance San Diego, which is why I checked out the school while I was down visiting my sister. And uh, man, tough guys down there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you caught me off guard, man. I saw the, at the time, by the way, congratulations on your blue belt. That is huge. You absolutely deserve it. Oh, um, thanks, man. I, I remember... Uh, rolling with you very vividly because i was like oh white belt i could take it easy and i could not take it easy uh you were just tough as nails uh but yeah uh so that's a little bit about me yeah i appreciate that man the, that it's a really tough academy i mean it, I've, there there's there's killers up and down the line there and there, there, there there's not really any easy roles at the whole place it's pretty crazy yes definitely yeah well Dude, so um, let's talk about a little bit about like your history in the Marine Corps, um, Chief Warrant Officer. You know, not everybody that's that's kind of a rare breed, right? So, so yeah. how did that whole thing happen? How how how'd you get to that point? You know, it's funny. Um, when I first joined, you know, I was I had an incredible beginning to my career. I uh, I went obviously boot camp, MCT, and then my school was at uh, Little Creek, Virginia. And when I got there, um, I ran over to the uh, the next, the Naval exchange or whatever. And I saw this coffee cup that had a chief warrant officer five like logo on it. And I didn't even know what it was. You know, they don't like necessarily drill you on chief warrant officer ranks, but obviously like the CEO for the school, the Naval school was a chief warrant officer. I think it was a four at the time. So I, you know, being a young motivated Marine, I was like, I got to rise to the top. And I just assume like being an officer has to be the highest, you know, thing. And I went and bought that cup. Um, and I put it in my room and we had a, an inspection and my platoon sergeant comes in and sees this cup and just tears into me. What the hell do you think you're doing? You don't rate this cup. And I, uh, I was a little bit, uh, not a little, a lot ego driven back when I was younger. Uh, and I basically said like, you got to dress for the job you want staff sergeant. <laughs> like I said, <laughs> so, um, Fast forward, you know, I, I do a couple of tours under my belt and I, at my second tour in particular at the uh, 2nd Marine Division, I had a really bad tour. I almost left the Marine Corps. Um, I do a lot of canine work outside of the Marine Corps and I was applying to all sorts of police departments and stuff like that. And I happened to have a master gunnery sergeant check in about five 
maybe five months before the end of that tour. And I had pretty much set my mind up on leaving the Marine Corps when he showed up. Um, and as soon as he walked in, he, he kind of saw something in me and, and he started putting me in really important positions within our unit um, just to, to show me, I think, that I could, I could make a difference in the lives of the Marines I lead. And uh, he, he basically saved my career. He sent me to advanced school. He changed my mind about leaving the Marine Corps and I stayed in. And um, he, was, he was an incredible Marine, Master Gunny, who was a, a musician but had multiple deployments under his belt. He also did an IA billet out in uh, Kuwait, I think it was, voluntarily, just because he wanted to be a part of the Marine Corps in that way. And he was just a big motivator. His name was uh, Matthew Boatwright was his name. Uh, and he's still, I, I keep in touch with him today. So at that point, um, I'm like two tours in, and I'm like, I want to be a master guns one day, um, which is funny because here I am right now. So I dedicate myself to becoming what he was, which is a leader. Uh, and somebody who um, identifies what the Marines need that are in my charge and how do I best serve them? I think that was where he really came into, into play. So I go to advanced schooling after my second tour, which is called the Senior Musicians Course, which is typically a course that um, we send our most senior leaders to if they aspire to be officers or senior enlisted. And after that tour, I went out to the 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing to serve there. And I checked in with my brand new boss, who was a brand new warrant officer at the time. And he sits me down and he says, so what's your plan? My job as your officer in charge, I need to tailor, you know, your path to your goals. I need to test you appropriately. So what is it that you want to do? And I told him my plans. Basically, I wanted to, you know, achieve this billet, that billet, go to a B billet to drill instructor school, and then uh, eventually become a master gunnery sergeant and lead Marines like I was led. And he said, that's a great plan. Why? <laughs> Why do you want that? And I told him the reasons. Um, and, he, and he asked me a tough question that totally changed my career. And at that point, I think I'm about 11, 12 years in at that point. And he said to me, what is the difference between an officer and an enlisted? And to a lot of people who are in the military, I think we superficially, we all know the answer to that for the most part, you know, um, but what I didn't understand was really the, the depth of the question was, what is the role of an officer versus an enlisted? Because I have a master sergeant right now who's my senior enlisted. He's got 20 plus years. I've only got 18. So he's got a college degree. I don't. He could clearly, I think if I'm dead, sick with COVID, like I was in November, you know, whatever, he could clearly stand in my place and get the job done. So the question then I had to really chew on it. What was the role of an officer versus the role of an enlisted. And when I dug deeper into that, I realized that um, I think we sometimes value officers more than enlisted, or we somehow think that, it, that that's a higher level of position because we get saluted. But the truth is, is that I think leadership is very uh, broad. An officer's role is much more about vision, much more about intent and creating a direction to go. Whereas on the enlisted side, it's more about taking that vision and implementing it, finding ways to make it come to life. And what I realized is that my personality and my skill sets and the thing, the way I think is much more in line to be an officer in the sense that I'm much more vision oriented, much more um, driven about what could be, uh, what direction are we going versus making other people's vision come to light. And that changed my trajectory again, where I realized 
I think I'm better suited as an individual and my personality to go into that role versus an enlisted role. Uh, it also made me realize that we, as a military, often look at the collar and we, we put people in a certain podium or pedestal in the wrong way. I think we need to start looking at it and saying, what are the roles of those people's jobs? And are they in the right role for their strengths and their weaknesses, so to speak? I never want to be with a visionary senior enlisted because that's what I do. And right. I would be missing that person who's analytical, a logistician, somebody who can coordinate events, somebody who can find the problems with my vision, fill in the gaps, and then let's make it happen. So uh, that's kind of how I ended up where I'm at. Um, it was a, a very big roller coaster of a career so far. Uh, I feel very good where I am now and uh, very blessed to, to kind of have gotten here. Let me ask you something. So um, being a visionary, is, is that something that somebody's born into or is it something that you can, can um, establish in yourself? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer that um, a lot of us have like a nature to us, our, our soul. And I love the, the title of your show, you know, but I, what is a soul? I think that's something that when you're born, that is something you have. Of course, our life experiences shape us in some, <clears throat> um, but I do believe that we are every single person given a soul that has unique characteristics that are unique to us. We might have similarities to other people, uh, strengths or, you know, um, one of the cool things that that master gunny made me do when I first met him and he made the whole team do it. We had 50 Marines. He said, every single one of you is going to take a Jung personality test. And what he was doing was he was trying to figure out what kind of people do we have and who works best together so we can create teams that when we have projects, we have the right people working together. Cause if you have the same type of people for everything, sometimes you miss something, right? I believe that there's a lot of ways to lead and every personality can introvert, extrovert, everybody can lead in different ways. But when it comes to being a visionary, I think it's just something that you, you kind of discover about yourself that it's something you're inclined to. I think there's people who maybe want to be visionaries and they might struggle to do that. Um, I think Simon Sinek talks about, you know, like 2% of the population can, is really a visionary type. Like that's their personality. And then you have early adopters, which is like the next category of like 10 to 15% of the population. Um, I, I'm a believer that just because you're a visionary doesn't make you better than anyone. It's just how your mind might work differently than other people. Uh, I suck at details. I suck at like uh, being really detail oriented. It doesn't mean I couldn't get better at that or learn at it, but it's definitely not within my, my nature to be super detail or, or, um, planning and things like that. I think very broad and I get very creative and I go on wild goose chases in my brain about a lot of things. And it takes a lot of work for me to, to kind of create discipline within myself. Just yeah path, so to speak. So that, that's kind of how I feel about that. Well, one of the things, one of the reasons I asked that is because we're talking about the Marine Corps here, right? And I love the Marine Corps. I had a great time when I was in the Marine Corps. You look like you're having an excellent time in the Marine Corps. There's a lot of people who don't have an excellent time in the Marine Corps, right? And, and I think like one of the things that can, can, that can depend upon is who your leadership is when yeah. you eventually get to your first duty station, right? And one of the things I've seen over my time 
is that the Marine Corps can have an uncanny ability to kill the visionary in a lot of people. I agree. Um, as can most facets of the U.S. government, not just the Marine Corps. And, and again, I love the Marine Corps. I think it's the, the best thing that ever happened to me. But, but I've seen this over and over again. I hear it from veterans all the time. Um, you know, I, I, I get active duty Marines who comment on my stuff all the time. Um, how do you beat that? How do you get around that? Yeah, that's an awesome question. And honestly, over the last five years, uh, I became an officer in 2017 is when I went to officer school. And uh, over the last five years, that's been the most kind of apparent light bulb that has gone off because I'm on a different side of the spectrum today than when I first joined, obviously. So the hard thing is this, when we come in, especially let's just talk Marine Corps, I guess. When we come in, they tell us every Marine is a leader, every Marine, the, the lowest Lance Corporal PFC, whatever. If there's two of you, one of you is leading, one of you is following, right? They teach us that in any scenario, next man up is everybody's got to be ready to step up and lead. Right. But the, that topic is that when you hit the, the fleet, heck, even some of the MOS schools early on, what are we told most often? Shut up, fall in line, do as you're told. That's what we're expecting. Such a fucking suck. That's what you hear. <laughs> Here's the conundrum, right? As your career progresses, our roles tend to change. Look mm -hmm. at non-NCOs, your privates through Lance Corporal. They are very much, uh, I, I like to break it up into three categories. Your non-NCOs, they are the future. They determine what our capabilities are a year, two, three years from now, right? So that's how I view that whole group of people. They got to be amazing at everything because they're the newest guys. They better be the fittest, the fastest at everything because they're going to determine what we're capable of to move forward. Then you have your NCO ranks, corporal sergeant, and those that crew essentially is the implementers of the Marine Corps. They are the doers. They make the visions happen. And then you have your staff NCO ranks. And to me, the staff NCO ranks, their job is to foresee the challenges of the vision from the officer ranks. Look at what's wrong with the plan, advise, recommend, come up with solutions before the problems you know, arise. Here's the issue. When you're a young Marine, you can't see the Marine Corps that way. You only see it from the lens of personal self. And if you're a young Marine, but you have the skill set that a senior or even a junior officer supposed to have, you find yourself in a, in a difficult spot where you're saying, I, I'm being told to color, shut up and color, but I can see what's wrong with all of this. And I have a much better way to do it, but you're not in a position yet to actually make that happen. Right. right. This is where I found myself, my second enlistment at Camp Lejeune, terrible leadership, Wanted to get out because I was like, this is insane. I could do so much better if they just give me a chance. But I was a, a, you know, senior sergeant, junior staff sergeant at the time. And it was like pulling teeth to the point where I said, screw this. You know, they don't want my skill set. That's a very, it's a difficult spot because in many ways it can be true, but it's also myopic to look at it that way. Because eventually, if you don't focus on what you're not capable of doing today, but focus on the bigger picture. Again, this is partially a vision thing. And sometimes it's a maturity thing. I did not have much maturity early in my career. I had to 
a lot to get some maturity. But once you're able to break out of that idea that, you know, screw this because this is just a freaking crap show. I'm not, you know, I'm not happy here. Once you're able to break through that idea and start to look bigger and start to ask yourself when I am in the position to, what will I do differently? Then your, your thinking goes from self-preservation to serving others. So if you stop looking at it and going, everything sucks for me and start looking at it and saying, what can I do today to learn how not to lead so that in the future, when I am a leader, my Marines will never experience that. You, I'm sure you ran into senior you know, leaders who were awesome. And yeah. most of them tell you, I had crappy leaders early in my career and I learned a lot of lessons through what not to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's, it's, you know, it's normal for a, a young person to say, screw that, I'm out of here. But the problem with that is you might be a great Marine or a great leader who's basically leaving everybody behind who stays. So right. now you could have been that guy that could have fixed, let's call it fixed the system. But instead, you looked after self instead of look at, looking to how to serve other people. And I don't blame anybody for doing that, Chris. But at the same time, I feel very fortunate that that happened to me when I was a little bit later in my career and I didn't cut bait and I stayed so that I could help serve, you know, and lead Marines in a capacity where I am today. And I, and it was a great decision. Very, very lucky that I was at that point in my career to stick out around. Cause if my first tour was like my second, I probably would have been gone by my first tour. What, uh, so did you, um, when you joined, did, was it initially with the band or, or, or were you doing something else and then got, a, got assigned a billet there? How, how'd that work? Yeah. So um, for the Marine bands, we have, uh, we have 10 fleet bands. Uh, we're not, so I, I should preface this because I know a lot of listeners probably aren't like intimate with the program per se. Right. A lot of questions about that, but like the president's band, the president's mm-hmm. own, they're completely separate. Um, there's a lot of questions I get about like, do you guys go to boot camp? And all the fleet bands, the 10 fleet bands, they all go to boot camp, MCT, all that stuff. We all shoot every year, et cetera, deployable. But the president's zone is a completely separate thing. And so a lot of times people, you know, just ask that question. But we do have to audition mm-hmm. prior to enlistment. Right. So we have like basically the same process as everybody else, plus one more step mm-hmm. pre boot camp, which is a, gotcha. an audition process so yeah i came in just for this program specifically that's cool that's cool the um the uh i think you know in a lot of ways we it when you're in a billet like that that's like high visibility for the marine corps you know sometimes people like look at that with like a lot of jealousy like if you're with eighth and i or you're you're, you're with the the commandant's owner the president's own or things like that a lot of times people look at that with a little bit of jealousy because like you know i I think about the way I felt about it. Like when I was enlisted, I went and I watched eighth and I perform. Right. And I was like, Oh man, these guys look awesome. It was so cool. I felt so proud to be a Marine. On the other hand, I also felt like I was buried in the fleet and like, was like a no name, nobody who like, you know, like was just a number and stuff like that. And and the reason I asked that is because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people in the audience who who are going to feel like that, you know? Yeah, I, um, it's a difficult uh, thing. And I've talked to lots of, you know, retired active duty, everybody throughout 18 years now, 
about um, how Marines feel. You know, I'll just say it from my lens, from the music field, right? Like, should we even have a band? Uh, that conversation comes up all the time with, uh, I will say it, especially uh, infantry-based uh, MOSs. I mean, I, I've seen it left and right comments about why do we even have this? Take that money and put it into equipment. And, you know, and, and it's a fair thing to say. Um, but again, I think this is all about perspective sometimes. So uh, you, you mentioned like some of these MOSs. I don't want to stop you there, but from my perspective, having been an infantry Marine, I always liked the fact that we had a band. I always liked the fact that we had an Ethan I, because like, that was the thing. Like, I mean, I'll be honest, like it was the guy in dress blues slaying the dragon that, that yep. made me want to join. You know what I mean? Like, like that's why I joined. I, I wore my dress blues like twice in my life, <laughs> like never wore them outside of that. Like, but that's besides the point, you know what I mean? It's like, that's the thing that made me want to get into it. And so when the Marine Corps can do things like that with high visibility, that helps all of us because it brings yeah. more people in the Marine Corps. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story um, that a lot of people don't know about. Uh, during World War II, the, when the U.S. was basically trying to march its way through the Pacific, um, we were running out of funding. The, the country was basically begging the citizens to buy war bonds so we could sustain beans, bullets, and band-aids. Like we really couldn't shoot a bullet anymore because we were running out of money. And uh, that was about the same time frame that we were going to go fight at Iwo Jima uh, and, and we take Mount Sarabachi. Now, what a lot of people don't realize, like when we start to talk about these, these support, we'll call them what they are, right? Supporting MOSs. They're not directly attached to the, the war fight, but they are in some way trying to influence the American public and, and garner support from the American people. So when that combat cameraman took the photo of us raising the flag on Mount Sarabachi, that picture was posted on the front page of almost every major newspaper in the United States within days. And the title, the headline for all the newspapers was the same basically it was we're winning the war by war bonds they were basically it was a rally cry to the american people to gain trust that we can totally win this world war because it was a kind of touch and go situation and all of a sudden the u.s government was able to raise hundreds of millions of dollars and this is at a tough time economically for the country and the world and we sustain the war effort and we win the war. And a lot of people think that that picture, if you really think about it, was the catalyst to really pushing us to the finish line. Now, I, I will never claim that like what I do today can ever compare to something like that, because you, when that moment happens, that cameraman doesn't know that that's what the result is going to be. Right. But like what we have to always remember is uh, every so often, as an example for the Marine Corps, the, the government will question, do we need a Marine Corps? Do we need to have this? Why don't we just integrate the Marine Corps into the army? You know, this conversation has happened you know, every so often, every other decade or something. And uh, the, the answer to that is, you know, in, in a great quote, the, the country doesn't need a Marine Corps. It wants a Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. Part of that is that we have to gain trust from the American people. We have to show them why they should have a Marine Corps and why they should always want us around. First to fight concepts, uh, ready at all times, the fastest, most deployable military we have. 
that's the you know United States Marine Corps. So like it's for me, I look at that message, that idea, and I see my job, which is a tiny, tiny piece of a very big machine. And I and I realize that everybody's got a role to play in all of that. And uh, sometimes it's hard for people to just kind of understand that perspective. But I also get why I see people say like, screw that. We shouldn't have that. I just want bullets and bombs and this and that. I get that too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always got to keep things kind of in a balanced thought process. There's a lot of strategy to fighting. So, yeah. No, absolutely, man. Um, you, you recently overcame a, a really bad injury too, right? Uh, yeah, I had, um, I had a knee surgery, um, back in July of last year. So I actually, when I met you, I had that, I think that was my first time training since the knee surgery, which was awesome because your gym was freaking tough. And I was like, that, that motivated me. You know, I think my first role was with that. I can't remember his name. I feel terrible. He was an awesome guy, the Brown belt there. Um, Um, it was probably, uh, Brian, um, heavier guy, like super flexible. Yeah. He's just going to be. Uh, I think I started stretching to warm up and he was like, want to roll? And I, you know, I'm the visitor and I'm just like, okay. <laughs> <So> <laughs> my first role was with him and we went for a couple of rounds straight. Um, but yeah, I, I had the knee surgery back in July and ironically uh, an injury is what got me into jujitsu. Um, I had spinal surgery in 2010 and after my recovery from spinal surgery, I started watching um, the MMA team, which was on Camp Lejeune, just Mm -hmm. practice. It was led by a guy named David Porter, who is an amazing black belt. He's under Pedro Sauer. Um, I love him to death. In fact, when I got promoted to blue belt, I wasn't training with him. He gave me his actual personal blue belt to wear. And I wore it full time as a blue belt because it was like such a huge honor, you know, for us, our belts are really special. And he gave me his blue belt. Uh, I still have it till this day, but David Porter, he, he basically, you know, allowed me to come watch the team. Uh, and I had just had a huge, like this spinal surgery was to save my life. I still can't feel my right side of my body, uh, on the surface level of my skin. I can't feel anything from my belly button down basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Dave, you know, said, yeah, come on down and just watch. After about three months, uh, I said, hey, I really want to train with you, but I'm scared because, you know, I just had this back surgery. And he goes, listen, I'm going to be the only one you roll with. I'll teach you techniques. I will only put as much pressure on your body as you put on, on me. And he was amazing of that. And literally in a month, I was like rolling maybe 50% speed with him. And about two months later, I was kind of rolling full out. And this is you know, three and a half months removed from spinal, serious spinal surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few weeks later, MCCS, uh, Marine Corps Community Services, uh, tells Dave that they're going to sponsor the team to go fight at a Naga tournament for, you know, for jujitsu. And I've never competed. I've never trained jujitsu up until that point. And Dave says, hey, guys, MCCS is going to pay for our hotel, our food and the tournament fees. Who wants to go? And I said, I'm in, I got to do this because it's an awesome, you know, opportunity. I go and I, it's, I'm doing no gi at the time. I had never put on a gi in my life at that point. And I compete in my weight class. And in the open class, I entered both divisions. Uh, I weighed about 170 at the time. And in my weight class, I won my first match, lost my second one. I was, I basically didn't even medal in my weight class. Um, but in the open, I won two matches by submission 
And then I got to fight for gold against oh, wow. the guy hundred pounds bigger than me. He was a huge, he weighed 270. Um, he got the takedown right away, just from sheer explosive, like hugeness. And for the rest of the match, his coach yelled at him to hold me, just hold him, hold him, hold him the whole match. I lost by one point after multiple sweeps and this and that. So I was so proud. In fact, I, I have to find the picture, but I'm, I'm standing there, you know, my hand is not raised. His hand is raised, mm -hmm. but I have a huge smile on my face and he's like holding his knees from like being exhausted because I was just, I wouldn't stop. You know, I took my silver medal. I sent it to my neurosurgeon who just did this spinal surgery five months ago. Mm -hmm. And he calls my commanding officer and basically tells him like, I have destroyed my back for life. I will never be able to serve in the military. It's over. Oh my God. So I, as I said, I was pretty stupid when I was younger and maybe I'm, I don't know if I still am, but I didn't read any of the discharge paperwork for the surgery. I didn't look at what I should do to heal. I didn't do any of it. And you know, like we have what's called limited duty status, right? Mm -hmm. So I was supposed to be on limited duty for a year after this severe surgery. And I'm out here grappling at tournaments five months later. So we ran a bunch of tests and um, basically the surgeon calls me and says, are you sitting down? And I just break into tears. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm like, it's over. You know, my career's done. My, my health is done. And he basically says to me, I don't know what you've done. I don't know what you ate. I don't know what your routine was, but I want to run a study on you because you are a miracle of science. Your back is totally strong. Like all the ligaments are there. And, uh, you know, I, I tell everybody that's just that was God without question for me. That was God that saved me legitimately. Um, they tried to process me to get out of the Marine Corps at that point. Cause the doctor was like, I don't think this kid could, you know, do what you need him to do physically. Uh, I took a physical fitness test a month after they put me on a medical board. I scored a, a I scored like a 290 out of 300. And they basically said, if he can do this, he can stay in the core. And I got to stay. Uh, and then like, you know, seven years later, I'm an officer and I'm at TBS going through the infantry training stuff. And I'm like, always looking back to that point as a very strong pivot uh, in my life, but yeah, injuries are part of the game. I'm sure, I'm sure you've had your share too. And, yeah. uh, yeah, a few. today is uh, all, you know, for me, I'm at an awesome school here in Beaufort, South Carolina called stillness Academy. Um, uh, my instructor is, uh, Cesar Clavijo and he's a Roy Dean black belt, uh, who is phenomenal. And in fact, he's really an interesting guy. He, we, none of us wear a colored belt in our school. Everybody wears a white belt, including him. And he's a Roy Dean black belt, you know, oh, wow. but it's a very humbling place. Nobody cares about, you know, what your belt is. We're all there for each other. We're all there to get better. And that's it. Um, but today my focus is like, how can I do jujitsu for the rest of my life? Uh, I love competing. I'm a very competitive guy, but it's not the thing that, that drives me as much anymore. I really just want to do jujitsu uh, forever so that it's something that keeps me healthy, not breaks me down, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I got a friend who, uh, who just started, he's a little bit older than I am, mid forties and, and he's a white belt. And I told him, man, like take the ego out of it, tap early, tap often, don't get into death matches with other white belts, try to roll with the higher belts, that kind of stuff, you know? 
Um, but I think the biggest thing is just relaxing and like not, not worrying so much about getting tapped or anything like that, but just learning. For sure, man. For sure. Um, well, man, I appreciate you coming on. Can you tell the audience how they can, um, how they can uh, find you? How, how can they get in touch with you? Are you, you on social media? Yeah. I, you know, I have two Facebook accounts. Um, one of them is basically like my canine page that I pretty much just only focus on like all the, I, I do a lot of uh, protection work is what I kind of specialize in with these working dogs, German shepherds and Roddies and Malinois, all that. And uh, to find me, you would just look up Mark helper, H E L P E R. Payon, which is my last name, P-E-L-L-O-N. So that's how they'll find that page. Um, a helper is the guy that basically the dogs bite and I help the dogs develop. And so I just made that my, that's not my real middle name, but I made that so that I can distinguish my normal page from my, my dog, you know, training stuff. Um, and then my normal page is just my first name, last name, Mark Payone. Uh, I, I, I plan on, you know, in the future, I have some, some entrepreneurial uh, I, you know, big visions for that. I, I want to open up my own jujitsu school one day. Uh, I have a logo that I've already created. I have all that stuff, but that your audience doesn't need to know any of that until a couple of years from now when I retire and, and I start to, uh, to move down that road. I just, you know, I just really want to encourage everybody really. I, I know that this, this show uh, is, is really dedicated to, to the concept of being a warrior and the soul of a warrior. And that means that if, if you are dedicated to being a warrior, that means you're going to run into a lot of friction points in your life. You're going to run into valleys as, mu as much as you're going to run into peaks. Uh, we are the men in the arena, as they say. Uh, and I just want to encourage everybody because I have had a lot of valleys, moments where I didn't think I could go on, moments where I was really in despair. And those are the times where we are truly being made into who we're going to be. And we can't see it. Uh, we can feel that it sucks, though. Uh, I just want to encourage everybody to live with boldness, with vision, uh, to believe that even if something seems insurmountable, it is not. Especially if you're out there and you're listening and you're a Marine or you are, are out of the core at this point or whatever, don't let go of who you really are. A lot of guys get out of the core and all of a sudden they, they go back to some sort of like pre core life because they had a bad experience in the core but you became a marine you did your boot camp time you did the crucible you did something that few have ever even considered take those principles of honor courage and commitment live them uh and and you know i just want to say that um you know i got a lot of respect for everybody who served and i appreciate all, all of those folks um you know they set the path for us whether they did four years or 40 uh, and uh, hopefully we're, we're living it up right now and doing them justice. So I appreciate y'all. Awesome, Mark. Awesome. Well, guys, I hope you got a lot out of this episode. Uh, Mark's got a great story here. And, uh, you know, I think with every episode and every guest we bring on, there's always little gems you can take from their story, from their life. Um, and, and, you know, really think about it, you know, where can you access vision? How can you make your vision come to life? Are you somebody who, who, who is a visionary? Are you somebody who is an implementer? Think about all those things. Um, you know, maybe do some self-assessments regularly, you know, cause people change over time. Um, I like to do a self-assessment quarterly, uh, and, and think about where it's going to leave you, lead you and, uh, live your best lives while you can. This is Chris Albert and Mark Payone. 
and we are out.